Welcome to Crump Insights, exploring timely life insurance and retirement planning topics for today's forward-thinking financial professionals. In this download, real-life horror stories and how life insurance plays a role. I'm Brian Bushlack, your host for this series and an active life and health insurance producer. As we count down to Halloween, we'll discuss misperceptions, misuse, and misunderstandings of life insurance to make sure you can help your clients avoid a scary outcome. Joining us, Andrea Pluck, Vice President of Carrier Relations, and Steve Krager, CLU, HIA, MBA, and Vice President of Advanced Sales at Crump Life Insurance Services. Well, Andrea and Steve, thanks to both of you for joining us. And Andrea, I know you're a true crime aficionado. Could you share maybe the high-level details of a recent case you've been following and help us understand where life insurance is connected to this story? Thanks, Brian. I'm excited to be talking with you all today. So the story I'm about to share teaches us important lessons about fraudulent behavior in life insurance, as well as how and why life insurance was put in place to protect beneficiaries in the first place. Also, it is evidence that life insurance companies have put procedures in place to protect policy owners and beneficiaries in these scary situations. And I thought it would be a good story for us to showcase. So in this story, we have a man who has a husband and father who is this murder victim a wife accused of murdering him with a drug-laced Moscow mule. The wife attempted to claim her husband had a drug problem and that the drink was in celebration of a new home they had purchased. However, that story unraveled quickly. The wife is currently charged with felony, aggravated murder, three charges of possession with intent to distribute, and recently financial charges have been added because they found fraudulent activity on the husband's life insurance policies. Currently, the wife awaits her trial. This case is really popular in the mainstream media today because exactly one year after the husband's death, the wife published a children's book written to help children through the grieving process when losing a loved one. The wife heavily marketed this book that it was written with her children in remembrance of their father and even includes a dedication to her late husband. The wife went on local morning talk shows to sell her book and now some very heavily scrutinized interviews. But what we're here to talk about is life insurance and how this played a part. So there were several life insurance policies in place on the victim and police discovered evidence of forged signatures by the wife to take out four policies totaling $1.5 million on her husband's life with her as the beneficiary. And this was done in recent years prior to his death. Police also discovered a policy for $2 million with the husband's business partner as the beneficiary, in which his wife had also allegedly forged his signature to change the beneficiary to herself. However, and this is why I thought this would be a great story for us to talk about, the life insurance company saved the day. The life insurance company alerted the policy owner to the beneficiary change and the husband was able to correct it back to his business partner before his actual death. This fraudulent beneficiary change alert by the life insurance company is what caused the husband to grow suspicious of his wife to the point where family members shared that he said to them, if anything happens to me, look at my wife. And then a few weeks later, he was gone. 
the wife found out after his death that he had changed the beneficiary from her back to his business partner and that she would not receive any of the $2 million. The reason this case is in many ways a great example of what life insurance can do, in my opinion, is that the fraudulent beneficiary change helped alert the victim to what was happening. He was able to warn his family, which helped bring his wife to face her own justice for this crime. But really, there's a lot more to learn about life insurance from the aspects of this case. So that's why I asked my good friend and life insurance expert, Steve, to help me educate our listeners. Yeah, Steve, let's call on you. Can you help us understand how a policy might have been set up here in a situation like this with a business partner and a family? Yes, Brian, and thank you for having me because this is truly an interesting case and uh, highlights the actual things that we go through in applying for a life insurance policy and ultimately making sure that it does what it's intended to do. So I want to frame this part of the conversation in the context of how would we normally see a traditional buy-sell structure set up for a business where we basically have two types uh, that start uh, for buy-sell planning. One we call the cross-purchase buy-sell, which would be where Andrea would be the owner of a beneficiary of a policy on me, assuming we were in business together, and I would be the owner and beneficiary of a policy on her. That way, when someone dies, in my case, let's say I pass, Andrea, as the owner and beneficiary, gets the sufficient funds to uh, make sure the buy-sell is actually executed so that it can be done. Like I tell people, you can draft the buy-sell if you don't take care of the funding. It's just basically a time bomb waiting to go off. And the other type of buy-sell, just as different variation of that would be if the business owned the policy. The business would be the owner and beneficiary. Again, having sufficient proceeds at the time of my death to buy out my estate or my spouse, depending upon how we've worked that. But um, that's your fundamental of a buy-sell arrangement. Now, if you do go with the cross-purchase, that's a very good opportunity to supercharge your buy-sell with what's called a step-up in basis because the money actually comes from the uh, surviving partner. Entity purchase because the business is doing the buyout doesn't have that. But in either case, the owner of the policy is going to uh, have money as the beneficiary to do this. Now, what's curious about this specific case, Brian, is that we don't know that that is actually the structure. In fact, from our research, it appears that the husband may have just had a personal policy in which he owned, but he named his partner as beneficiary. And likewise, the partner had a personal policy that he owned, which he named the husband as the beneficiary. Now, there's two issues here I want to highlight that are very important for practitioners in this situation. If you do do something like this, that becomes a little bit more difficult, a little more challenging to underwrite. All the good carriers we work with, if you say it's buy a sell plan, they're going to want that type of traditional focus I talked about with either the cross purchase or the entity purchase in order to provide financial justification. So there's that practical aspect right out of the gate. But even a more perhaps sinister, if you will, I don't mean that in that context, but ultimately how it would play out would be if the policy is personally owned. And, you know, God forbid something happens where the insured learns they have a terminal illness, maybe only six months or weeks or whatever to live. They could change the beneficiary without the partner knowing that because they own the contract. And that's what's key here. Who owns the contract? And in fact, uh, you recently did a nice podcast with one of our vain sales attorneys, John Whitaker, about when the business owns the contract, 
in certain jurisdictions that can increase the value of the business. And we do have uh, certain hybrid buy-sell arrangements, such as a special purpose vehicle called the Insurance LLC uh, that you guys reviewed thoroughly that can mitigate these type of issues. But again, the business would own the contract. And getting back to that ownership thing, you could have a situation where the insured names the partner's beneficiary. Again, not meaning anything terrible, but it has a real negative repercussion. They find out they're going to die. They change the beneficiary. And the partner never even knows it until they pass. So there's some real practical applications of how you design it. In this case, and this is going back to that ownership thing I just mentioned, bottom line was the insurance company was thorough enough to make sure they notified the owner. Remember, life insurance contracts are ownership driven. Any tax questions all relate to who owns the contract. And of course, any changes have to be either initiated and signed off by the owner. And that's more why we think that perhaps the husband owned this policy because he gets the notification that the beneficiary has been switched and realizes that someone had forged his signature. Yeah, the carriers play such an important role in this. Andrea, help us understand that role more in depth here in underwriting a policy like this and the process that takes place for subsequent changes and how the carriers work to prevent fraudulent situations. I reached out to some of our carriers just to pull them on how they would handle situations like this. And, you know, we work with the leading life insurance companies in the industry. And really, they all have put procedures in place around sending notifications on policy changes, specifically beneficiary changes, since that, you know, is really what determines who's going to receive the funds of the contract should the insured pass. These carriers put notifications in place, many sending multiple notices to various forms of communication, email, postal mail, call, text, et cetera, to make sure that the policy owner is 100% aware of the change that happened to their policy. They do this in part to protect from fraudulent activity exactly like we're talking about with this case. What the general public usually doesn't realize is that once a carrier determines that there is fraudulent activity with a policy, That carrier has the option of canceling the contract, and there is no guarantee that the policy owner or beneficiary or anyone will get any of their premium or any money back from the policy. The carrier is really not obligated to refund anything in those situations, and Steve and I have seen it happen where they will not. Yeah, I know we don't have all the facts here, but you're relying on various news coverage, but help us understand the likely coverage that was in place here and how typical or I guess, atypical these amounts would be for customers of their ages and their net worth. We found, in addition to the buy-sell, four policies totaling $1.5 million taken out by the wife between 2015 to 2017, where the wife is the beneficiary of all of them. Obviously, there isn't much public data on these policies. Like you said, it's private information. But we can assume that the wife wrote them as some kind of personal coverage, since she had herself as a beneficiary. So the purpose of insurance would have likely been either income replacement or estate planning. Steve, what do you think about the purpose of the sale and the amounts that they actually went for? That's a really good question because that ultimately justifies on a personal level, the financial underwriting and the financial justification. And although these certainly could have been taken out for estate planning policies, because this individual had been very successful in his business with his partner growing a construction business they had was doing very well. And carriers will often look at a potential estate planning sale. They'll take about 75% of your life expectancy and see what the obligation would be at that time. Not to mention, we had the statutory reversion of the estate planning threshold 
to be cut in half index for inflation starting January uh, 1st, 2026, where he normal circumstances would have certainly been alive. Uh, so that type of consideration could have easily justified the 1.5 million. However, as you now discussed, Andrew, I tend to think the justification that was utilized for this was more for income replacement. He was doing very well. 1.5 million on a general underwriting perspective would have taken him about 10 times a salary, uh, would be only 150,000. And I'm thinking he was probably earning more than that, could justify the 1.5 million. In other words, that 10 times your salary as an income replacement, just a rule of thumb. And, and certainly can, we can get more if justifiable, but uh, that might have been more for a personal type of coverage. Now, if on the other hand, too, there had been an estate planning application, we would have typically expected those policies to be held by an irrevocable life insurance trust so that they're removed from the estate and the death benefit doesn't add to the estate tax problem. So I really think, as you and I have discussed, these were more uh, positioned as income replacement because you know it would have been easy to justify it. And that is a kind of a normal way we see coverage. But here, getting back to the ownership thing is kind of a unique twist on things. Oftentimes, we recommend when spouses buy policies on each other for income replacement that they cross-own them, uh, similar to the cross-purchase buy-sell. In other words, if Andrew and I were husband and wife, Andrew would be the owner and beneficiary of policy on me, and I'd be the owner and beneficiary of policy on Andrew. Why? And this goes back to that somewhat nefarious thing I referred to earlier in our Halloween theme, but that would be something the event of a troubled marriage or, you know, we're not living together, that I can't change the beneficiary on my policy without Andrea knowing it because she would be the owner and vice versa for me. So that's probably the way we got this going. But, you know, the fraudulent uh, conveyance of uh, false signatures and so forth makes the whole thing even more dicey and more like just the look of a quick money grab, as you and I chucked on a little bit when we were preparing for this. Cases like this tend to highlight, you know, potential for fraud and abuse by customers in our industry. I want to talk about the misconceptions out there and how to educate and protect consumers, uh, those who are insured and the beneficiaries. Brian, and I'll tell you, it really does highlight that life insurance is not a wager, you know, in someone's life. The idea being that there must be some insurable interest for love and affection or for a business purpose, something that's documentable. If this person was gone, we would have to have this income replacement in order to fulfill things. It can't be just to make money. And that's what this was all about at the end of the day. And also, that's said earlier on, it gets back to the ownership nature of the uh, uh, policies of life insurance contracts. The owner is going to derive some benefit, monetary benefit, to replace the lost income potential, the potential tax obligations. The, the loss of this person creates X. So the owner and then ultimately the beneficiary needs to be indemnified. And that's something that underwriters, because of things that happened, you know, with stranger own life insurance and things finance cases in the past and so forth have become more acute to paying attention for so that we have a justifiable reason. There's an income replacement. There's an estate tax need. There's some need that has to be indemnified. And if you will, the mortality bond gives you an opportunity to pre-fund that and to provide coverage. And like I tell people too, there'd be a, there's a lot of misconceptions in Andrews, as she indicated earlier, they're not even on the obligation to return the premiums. Typically, they will, plus maybe some interest. But uh, if there's fraud, they can keep the premiums. 
the death benefit ever becomes payable and that ultimately the plans fall apart. But the whole thing is to protect against this type of unscrupulous activity where someone's trying to profit off of someone's death. Thanks, Stephen. That really brings up another good point about why it's important to properly set up and maintain beneficiaries as you are putting your life insurance in force. And really, this case is a perfect example of why that that matters. So Steve and I have seen many policies over the years where an ex-wife or an ex-husband gets rich off of a death of their ex-spouse because the insured forgot to update their beneficiary before they died. As a general rule, I always tell people anytime you have any kind of a life event, updating your beneficiaries really should be an item on your checklist. Well, Andrea, I know you have a passion for these true crime stories. Do you have any suggestions for our audience on where they can learn more about the scenarios you have highlighted here today? Oh, yes. There are a lot of great ones out there. I definitely listen to several of them. A few of my favorite true crime podcasts that have covered this case specifically, if you want to hear more of the crazy twists and turns of this story, which um, trust me, there are a lot more twists and turns through this story. Check out True Crime with Kendall Ray or Going West True Crime. Both can be found either on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Well, to all of our advisors out there and insurance producers, I got to tell you that these things really do happen. I know you hear about them sometimes and think, man, that is a crazy story, but these are actually true crime stories because they're true, right? Andrea and Steve, a great conversation. We appreciate both of you joining us. Yes, thank you. I really appreciate you guys working with me on this, and I'm excited to hear what our listeners have to say about it. Brian, thank you very much for having us and highlighting these unique and kind of interesting stories, particularly, like I said earlier, at Halloween. Crump Life Insurance Services, a leading third-party distributor and service provider of insurance and retirement products, is part of Truist Insurance Holdings Incorporated, the seventh largest insurance broker in the world. Crump supports the distribution of life insurance, annuities, long-term care, linked benefits, disability, and health products with the industry's premier sales and back office support and technology services. Marketing under the following brands, Crump, Truist Life Insurance Services, Risk Rider, TELUS, and Time. Source, Business Insurance Magazine, using 2019 brokerage revenue generated, 2020 issue. For financial professional use only, not intended for use in solicitation of sales to the public, not intended to recommend the use of any product or strategy for any particular client or class of clients, for use with non-registered products only. Crump operates under the license of Crump Life Insurance Services, LLC, Arkansas License 10010-3477. Products and programs offered through Crump are not approved for use in all states. Copyright 2023, Crump Life Insurance Services, LLC.